missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey! And Jason. Hello! Tonight, we're solving the problem of a famous tropical triangle, discovering stress secrets, and in the second half, we're going to have a good old-fashioned talk about publishing science in our own journal club. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. December 5th, 1945, five Avenger torpedo bombers left a naval air station in Fort Lauderdale under the leadership of Lieutenant Charles Taylor and given the designation of Flight 19. They were expected to do a routine training run around the Caribbean before returning to Fort Lauderdale. Let's just round it up and call it a three-hour tour. Turns out they were actually heading straight into one of the most enigmatic areas in the Atlantic the Bermuda Triangle. There have been hundreds of explanations for strange happenings in this part of the ocean. Sea monsters, interdimensional beings, a weak part of the veil. All we know is that on 3.45 p.m., a terrified Lieutenant Taylor radioed speaking his last words, can't see land, with another flyer later saying everything is wrong. We'll never be sure what happened on this fateful day. But the loss of Flight 19, as well as other unexplained disappearances, has given the Bermuda Triangle an air of mystery. However, it looks like Australian scientist Carl Kruschelnitsky, in partnership with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA, may have found the answer. Turns out it's just clever marketing from Big Bermuda Triangle, and that in no way more disappearances happen in this part of the ocean than anywhere else. Noting that while it is a tricky area to navigate, and there can be some compass anomalies, this kind of happens everywhere in the ocean, and it's not a big deal. So what do you think about these uh, fun statistics getting in the way of our fun, spooky stories to tell in the dark? I think that was a really great intro. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. It was so good. Um, I love mysteries. Like, I'm fascinated by mysteries, and I think a lot of people are too. So when you have things that are kind of unknown and you can kind of weave this tale and um, kind of draws you in. But in reality, nature is mysterious and just like, it's just natural that we have these Mm -hmm. places that have different weather conditions or, you know, than we're used to, um, which makes piloting and, you know, navigating planes maybe a little bit challenging. So it can be explained. But also, I love mysteries. But you hate when it is, right? <laughs> right. It takes away the mystery. That's right? the point, right? So, you know, we can romanticize mystery, but when there is data that flies in the face of it, right? Yep. We're able to um, take that information and apply it in a different scenario here and understand that, okay, it's not a conspiracy theory, but not everyone's equipped to do that. Yeah. What's the paraphrasing of the Huxley quote that I'm going to try to not butcher? Like, beautiful hypotheses ruined by ugly data? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he said it more British, but... Probably. But yeah, it's just a, you get a large volume of traffic in that area, and it's a tricky area to navigate because you have, 
the Gulf Stream that you, that introduces these changes in weather, and then you have a lot of islands there. So it's just complicated to navigate. And just like reefs everywhere. The Caribbean yeah. is noted for just having reefs that are not charted because there are so many of them. And that's why there's lots of pirate ships at the bottom. Well, you know, other wooden ships too, not just pirates. The cool ones are the pirate ships, though. The only ones I care about are the pirate ships. Cool, unless you're the victim of the pirates, and then maybe not so cool. Well, that's true. I don't know if you watched Our Flag Means Death. I haven't. Yes. I did. It's good. And now we're going to do a... I now love We're going to pilot our, our 20-part series on... Our Flag Means Death. I mean, speaking of pirates, right? I mean, it would be hard for us, and I know maybe it's hard for you, too. James, to acknowledge that uh, Pittsburgh's in first place in the NL Central. Oh, I was waiting for a baseball reference. Yeah. Good. We you got know, it. different divisions, so I don't really care that much, but it is tough to see, like, not both teams in Pennsylvania, because at least we had that, right? Both teams in Pennsylvania True. were bad. It was just like, it, it, it has to be the Keystone State. It's not Philadelphia. It's just Pennsylvania. The Commonwealth is letting us down. But now... When Pittsburgh's doing good, Philadelphia's not. I, I want to talk about Bryce Harper's back. Everything's fine. It's all fine. The, the NL Sixers Central is all messed gonna up. going to blow it again. It's not the finals, is it? Oh, it might be. If they don't win Sunday, it's 3-3, game seven against Boston. No, I mean, this, isn't the, this is not the finals, though, right? This is... Well, so Philadelphia has not gotten out of the second round in like 10 years, so it's kind of our finals. I get it. No, I get uh, that. But yeah. I just wanted to point out that like it would be such a Philadelphia thing to happen to lose I don't want to talk about all Jason. three talk, major you know, professional I sports championships in the same I year. I can't open my heart to that. That would be amazing. <sighs> that would be a oh, mystery. Oh, oh my gosh. And I have to tell you, as a Kansas City fan, even though we won the Super Bowl, I would give anything to have my teams lose in every championship. What? In the same year. I know it because that you means my teams that. have finally made it to the championship. Oh, <laughs> you don't okay. want that either. I got it. You. Right. you think you want that, Jason, but you don't. I promise you. I'm a broken husk of a person. Yeah, RuPaul's right. Drag Race All Stars oh. starts tomorrow or tonight, I nice. think. Just nice. so you know. At least so, we got that, right? Is there a pitch that. clock in that? You know? No. Speaking of all these things that cause me stress, Philadelphia sports. Debunking Bermuda Triangles. Let's move on to our next story. So a few weeks ago, Jason lamented the death of baseball, citing changes to the game like larger bases, bigger swings, and an overall abandoning of fundamentals. But what you didn't hear, dear listener, is Jason waking in a cold sweat, taking to Discord, furious he didn't even complain about the pitch clock. Luckily, our next story just fell right into my lap. In a fantastic article for Fast Company by the incredible Sean Blaylock, cognitive scientist and president-elect of Dartmouth College, so my future boss, she used the pitch clock to frame a larger discussion about burnout. In it, she talks about the exciting potential for the pitch clock, stating it could make pitchers and hitters more effective because they have less time to overthink fending off the dreaded paradox of choice. Meaning, if you have extra time and options, it's most likely going to lead to diminished effectiveness. So before I let Jason share his own wrong opinion about the pitch clock, I just want to congratulate President-elect Blaylock for this inspiring, maybe even courageous article. 
and I look forward to working with you to move Dartmouth forward. Go Big Green! Give a rouse, give a rouse with a will. I don't have a problem with the pitch clock, per se. <laughs> oh, I don't, which is, is why it, I didn't rant about it. What about the height because, of the pitcher's mound? That changed, Yeah, the too. height of the pitcher's mound, that, that's different. That's a different okay. issue, right? I mean... Steffi, are you just Googling what changed in baseball? Uh, no, she's just uh, goading me is what she's doing. I just got into a big discussion three nights ago at a theory conference, and I just brought <laughs> out all that energy and looked up more oh. stuff. Sorry. Steph, you make me so proud. I know. Um, Think of I don't have so I don't have, have a big now. problem with the pitch really? clock. I don't. Um, but I do have a big problem with um, the title of this article we read because yeah, it was it was not really telling you anything, was it? Well, so the title here is "A Cognitive Scientist Explains a Secret to Combat Stress and Burnout," and none of what was in here had to do with stress or burnout. It had to do with the ability to perform under um, under a time constraint, right? And effectiveness under a time constraint. Now, maybe that leads to stress, but it doesn't tell you how to combat stress. But more importantly, as your future boss <laughs> indicates here, <laughs> there's an issue here, right? And that is, you know, you could be more effective if you are working under a time constraint all the time but that might burn you out more and that would scare me right if i heard my future boss saying this is what you should do right (laughs) i'd be like uh (laughs) do you know what burnout is well like i can't even set the pitch clock (laughs) that's what burnout is i can't even like get to the field right sometimes and I think maybe the thing that we should note is that she was talking about like highly, highly skilled, highly trained people and the the pitch clock specifically for MLB players. Like if you put a pitch clock in low league, it's going to be chaos. Right. No, you're right. But I mean, I, we're I'm operating under the assumption here that everyone working and I know this is a huge assumption, everyone working in higher ed right, is an expert in something here. Oh. Right, I'm making Whoa. a huge mistake by making that child. assumption. I know. I love it. Right, but I have to. I have to make that assumption for this to be able to put my head around this one. Sure. Right, none of this working under time constraint is going to help with burnout. That was my issue. I mean, you know, I don't disagree with someone whose research suggests and is an expert in efficacy of performance under time constraint, but I don't believe that this does anything to deal with stress or burnout. So it does help, like I do some of this stuff for like class prep, because otherwise I'd be sitting there prepping forever. Right, exactly. And so I force myself to just work on the class prep for these specific times, specifically before the lecture. My students hate that the lecture is at 825 in the morning. I love it because then I get to campus at 6 a.m., and then I, that's my prep time, then I teach, and then I don't obsess about class the rest of the day. So that helps me. Totally with you. But then to talk to like the burnout, then I'm showing up at 6 a.m. and I'm on campus till 6 p.m. Right, exactly. On those days. Because you're not able to shift your schedule because not everybody else in your lab has shifted their schedule, right? I mean, that's always... So when I first got here to IU, I um, I was coming from a place where, you know, the day in the lab typically began, we typically began at nine. Right. Mm-hmm. But here, um, 
it was almost like a competition to see who could get here earliest, right? So like it was 7 a.m. was late for some people, right? And uh, lab would be in full swing at 7 a.m. And I liked that personally better because it meant that I could leave. The lab was shut down by like 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon because everyone was done doing their experiments for the day and they were, you know, off to do the next thing. And so I didn't mind that. But when not everyone's schedule shifts that way, you can't. Yeah. You end up with a situation like you're in, Steph, where, you know, um, you're on campus for 12 hours because you need your time in the morning and then you, everybody else needs your time in the afternoon. You know what I mean? Yep. It's tiring. Let's kind of talk about this paradox of choice situation that she brings up. Because I definitely at, at work find myself like when we're in the academic year and we're teaching and we're preparing for students and we're like getting curriculum together and doing all this stuff in the lab and kind of like in the vague I'm academic support kind of thing. You always kind of know what needs to be done and there is a short-ish time limit to get it done. You know, it not necessarily same day, but you know you're going to have things that you need to do every day and you just kind of work towards that. And then like the summer hits. And I know this isn't the same everywhere, but where I work, we don't teach in the lab in the summertime. So I have this like very long list of things that keeps me busy the entire summer. Please don't look at my FTE, President-elect Blaylock. Um, but <laughs> I have this very long list of things, but it just kind of has to get done by August, right? Yeah. So I come in and I'm like, which thing do I want to check out the list today? And I find myself like, drinking coffee and looking at my to-do list for 20 minutes before I do anything. And then I kind of like step myself back into action. But yeah, what do we think about this paradox of choice? Oh, I totally agree. I, it's like when I have time to do something, I take all the time to do it. When I don't have as much time, I still take all that time to do it. So this is my argument, right? Um, and this actually kind of leads us to the next story so i don't want to put the cart before the horse but when we ask people to review manuscripts and we tell them that they can have two weeks to do it that in my opinion is better than telling them they can have three weeks to do it or four weeks to do it because they're still going to wait until right before that deadline to start doing it right if you set that deadline earlier then when they ask for the extension it doesn't get that long right Right. but when they ask for the extension at four weeks and now it gets into six weeks like that's a problem my postdoc advisor gave me the best piece of advice in academia that anyone has ever given me, and I'm going to share it now. She said, a paper is never finished. It is abandoned to publication. <laughs> and she was 100% correct. You can tinker and tinker and tinker, and at the end of the day, if you are just tinkering with it, you're not making that paper better. Sure. That is in contrast, however, to the data that shows that papers that are revised multiple times through the peer review process get cited more because they're actually better science. That's interesting to me, right? So there's a certain point where you have to abandon it to the peer review process, but the repeated revision rounds actually makes the paper more citable. And that's really an interesting comparison. Sorry, Steph, you had something you wanted to jump in. So yeah, that's refining the story as is. I I see this in like dissertations too, Mm. where they are like, I have to have a complete story. And I'm like, science is never finished. We're doing the unknown. That's right. And and we build on each other. Um, And that is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Sure. Because it's kind of the first time they've gone through this process. Um, But that in a, I mean, we, we see this in like COVID, right? continuously learning Mm -hmm. i mean 
I'm just highlighting that part of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but this but whole yeah. idea of uncertainty, right? That's a, it's a kind of a hot right. area in social science research right now because, you know, people have different varying levels of comfort with uncertainty and, uh, mm-hmm. and academics have to have a lot of uncertainty. And so, yep. so to your point, Steffi, when students are, are writing their dissertations, um, and they are learning how to be a scientist, how to be an active practicing scientist, they need to get more comfortable with the uncertainty. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes to help folks it's get really over that hump. Hard. I know. Yeah. Cause, um, our educational system as is doesn't foster that. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about failure either. Right. And so science is like all failure. We only right. see the successes. No. Right. Absolutely. Well, and that's really hard. And it's also, you know, I, I guess it depends on what kind of science you're working in specifically to what I'm going to say. But um, there's just like so much gray area and you're constantly working in this gray area in between these like kind of foundational things that you can look back on and and compare to so i can see where if you're going like k through 12 and you're just learning like this is a fact that i'm going to test you on and you need to memorize this and then all of a sudden you're like thrown into college where it's like there's not a right answer to this if you can make a compelling argument maybe you'll get a good grade but you've never had to think that way before and i can see where you know think talking about like stress and burnout like that freshman year can be kind of brutal if you've never been taught how to think or how to reason or how to argue or communicate yeah man i'm gonna add to like one more thing before we go to the next Mm -hmm. article about make your own pitch clock so like (laughs) i talked about that for like how i prep for lectures Mm -hmm. i do set my watch for like the i forgot what it's called work 25 minutes and set a goal and then you take a break and for five minutes Mm. so that really helps for things um, and then they mentioned something about um, getting over failure or something like, like when you choke and it's really hard to trust yourself again. This is where I turn to like the sports side of me and I, I do mental management from sports to kind of w- work through failure yeah. if you choke during like presentations or something like that. That can be super helpful where you just visualize all the things going right and all the things that you have done right before to really put out of your mind that time you choked. Let me ask you a question, Steph. Do you find that your incidence rate of choking in situations is reduced since you've gotten some improv training? That is in my notes, actually. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. and they and I like pointed it out to this quote, like our brains hate uncertainty. So we obsess in the details that can undermine performance. And that's really why I love improv for this reason, because mm-hmm. you're living in the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah you're turning your and, attention outward and you're not focusing on the inward at all. Right. Yep. Yeah, so I don't really prep that much for talks for that reason. And like previously, that's where a lot of the choking happened for me. And mm-hmm. I would obsess about that right. just because it is public and in front of people. Yeah. But if you do the improv, like that transformation awesome. is amazing. Yay. Uh, absolutely. If only there was like some kind of group that was doing science communication training with an improv focus sometime in the fall uh, man that would be that would be a huge benefit to the world but anyway stay tuned yeah <laughs> i i think like famed communicator and just kind of like 
overall great person Ted Lasso said. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? No. It's got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love it. Did you watch this week's episode of Ted Lasso? Yes. No, I'm behind. Oh, it was great. Oh my God. The last so, one I saw was arc is, is amazing. It's amazing. Oh, but don't um, spoil I'm not it. Gonna no, no, spoil yeah, it. Yeah. It's just you're gonna be so happy. Yes, it's a good okay, one. Good, um, I need it. But there's I've had a week of. Ugh. There's a Ted Lasso quote though that just made me like so happy, what? and it was uh, about the Denver Broncos fans. Yes. <laughs> and I was just rolling laughing because oh. the moment he said. Something. Growing up in Kansas yeah. City, I had this friend yeah. who was a Denver Broncos fan, and I was just like, I know where this is going. <laughs> I got to say, though, I'm not going to give any spoilers away about context or anything. I loved every second of that speech he gave in that moment. Like, yeah, it was It was awesome. funny, Aww. but it was like so topical, like su- such a thing that needs to be thought about more right now. Yeah, I agree. In it was great. You're going to love it, Steph. The whole episode was fantastic. Yeah. One of my favorites. I just love that show. Okay. I'm excited. That's all I got. Well. Okay. I got to tell you, the one thing that I am not uncertain about in this uncertain world is that I'm going to need a little bit of a break before we talk about our last story. So here's a message from a podcast that I think you're going to enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. In the first half, we had a story about mystery and a story about stress. And I gotta say, there is nothing more mysterious or stressful to the average scientist than navigating the world of scientific journals. We're gonna talk broadly about publishing, but there was a story that sparked this idea for this discussion. So recently, the entire editorial board for the journal NeuroImage, published by Elsevier, they just left! Because the publisher refused to lower its publication costs in excess of 2,700 British pounds per article on top of subscription fees, ad hoc article viewing fees, and a ton of other ways Elsevier makes money. And now before you go thinking, they're just covering costs, right? Surely they need to make this money and keep science going. Elsevier banked 2.9 billion pounds last year with a profit margin of over 40%, which is bigger than Google. Amazon, and a ton of other companies that you're probably thinking about. So we're not talking about some indie science zine. So what do we think about this story specifically, but also the state of science journals, the scientific enterprise? Steffi, I'm unleashing you. Okay, so I'm just looking at my notes, everyone. I write notes for this, and they're just like all over the place. My last note is... Why are they charging fucking more for ebooks and printed books? I cannot. I hate everything right now. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So, <laughs> this is wild. 40% profit margins yeah. for these journal articles. For how much, like so much free labor. Right. So much free what, labor. I want to know, like, what are, 
what are their costs? Like, other than the the paper, the printing, and then the the server space. Well, they have copy editing. They have production um, staff, right? I mean, there there are costs. I'm not going to defend sure, publishers, sure, sure, sure. right? But um, there are certain costs that need to be recouped, and that's understandable. The forty percent profit margin is not understandable, <laughs> right? Wow. Um, but I will say that um, it, based on your point, Steffi, about uh, ebook licenses versus printed copies of mm-hmm. them, right? That seems to be where the real disconnect is, right? I mean, yeah, you can make an argument that you know twenty seven hundred British pounds might cover the cost of all of the production side um, of a single article. I don't know that I buy that argument, but I, that argument is much more palatable than like the, you know, 500 pound, 560 pound ebook license for a 35, 99 pound, right? Right. Um, right. Printed that. version of a book, right? That to me, it's that wild. I just cannot understand that um, because there's no additional, we've all seen Elsevier ebooks, mm-hmm. right? They're yeah. not, they're not like interactive in the way that you'd expect nope. an ebook to be that had that much of a markup in difference, right? It's a basically a PDF version of the printed textbook. Right. They're one step above the iBooks that we make for our anatomy lab. Like Right. And it's not even a big step. It's like I tripped a little bit. Well and the thing that's really frustrating is raises and jobs, you know, they're tied to these publications, especially the prestige journals right. that cost a lot of money to publish in. And so not only are we having to pay for this to get job, like raises prestigious jobs, but you also have to put in a lot of free labor for these same mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Art journals mm-hmm. to like get in the system. And then I'm going to add on top of all of this, there's this push for like open access science. Love it. Okay. I'm all for it. Right. It costs more upfront. To pay for that because they're right. not putting it behind a paywall. But the grants that we wrote included those charges for to put them behind the paywall because we're like always strapped for cash. And suddenly some organization that I, you know, get funded through was like, guess what? As of like now, you all have to publish open access, right. but we already funded you to not publish that way. So good luck to you. Right. Go figure it out. Thank yeah. You. So, so you you're actually bringing up some really complicated stuff here, Steph. And I'm putting on my editor hat for a second because you know, full disclosure, <laughs> I am editor in chief of a major academic publication. It's not published by Elsevier, um, but there are similarities in the academic publishing landscape that I think um, give me some insight here. And some of that has to do with sort of this confluence of multiple things happening all at once and those multiple things include a white house office of science and technology policy memo that is instructing the guidance for uh for the future of open science which is not open access science right that's there's two different things here open science and open access are different things open access refers to how journals are publishing information but open science is a theoretical approach to science the OSTP memo actually is talking about open science writ large, but provides some guidance on how open access publishing needs to happen. And so the guidance uh, revolves around federally funded grants that American taxpayers are paying for need to be published in a venue where American taxpayers can read it without embargo. And I fully support that idea. 
So yeah. that is one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening is that that publishers are changing the way that um, agreements are made between institutions and the publisher with regard to access. So subscriptions to journals are going away. Um, individual journal subscriptions have been going away for the last 15 years. More recently, and they started packaging groups of journals together. Publishers would say, oh, well, we've got this slate of you know, of journals and, you know, your library could pay us one fee and you get access to all of these for all your researchers. That was awesome for people who had great library access. Um, but a lot of places didn't have that. Right. Right. Um, right. And so I've been fortunate to, yep. um, to have been at the, the four medical schools that I've been at in my career, three of them had really great library access. Uh, one of them did not. Um, but I was in the same city as another major research institution that had an amazing access in academic publishing. So I was able to go to the library and use that. That was back when people actually stepped foot in a library still. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore. So the other thing really quickly is that they've moved away from subscriptions to, um, to what they're calling transformational agreements or agreements where um, they, will, they will allow a certain number of papers to be automatically published open access based on a fee that's paid by some consortium. So Steffi and I are fortunate that we're in the Big Ten. And so the Big Ten has a major transformational agreement with um, the publisher that publishes my journal, um, and presumably with others too, although I've, I, I haven't published in an Elsevier journal in a while. But I can publish almost anything I want open access because I'm at a, at a Big Ten school and they've got this agreement. And so that's amazing, again, for people who have access, but it's actually making it even yep. harder for those that don't. And because my journal is in the education realm, those fees to publish open access, which are you know $3,000 US, are really hard to come by when their funding isn't there for that. Right. Um, you know, that's about the size of, a, of an education grant in my area, um, let alone the publication fees. So lots of problems. It's been wild. I've published in journals that I don't have access to. Right. Like, what? Right. <laughs> It's crazy. I cannot. I hate it. Let's think about this like really big for two minutes and then we'll we'll land this plane. Unlike the flight 19. What's the bigger effect to science? Right. So the theory is you're putting your work out there in a peer reviewed manner so that science itself can read it, repeat it, confirm it or disprove it. And the scientific method just kind of churns its way through by having this knowledge out there. So. If these journals are publishing and science isn't able to read it, is it actually making science happen? Okay, so I will say from my point, um, like if I submit a an article to the peer review process, I get a lot of great feedback from the mm-hmm. reviewers mm-hmm. that I very much appreciate, both on like journal articles and grants to make me think about new things to to do, pursue. So I very much appreciate that. The headache of the system, and I don't know why. Please don't don't ask me to review articles right now. My my heart says mm. yes, and I type yes, and then it's not happening. Yeah, no, I totally get it. It's just bad. Is it's every one bad. of the articles that you're it's reviewing bad. becoming a Steffi Horcrux? <laughs> no, one is stuck. I just haven't had chance. No, I totally get it's it. It's just there's so much going on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. I mean, I actually think that there's something to that, right? Um, People get really frustrated. Scientists get really frustrated when their papers languish in the review process. Rightfully so. I understand it. But at the same time, they're also the ones 
who often cannot make the time to get to those papers because of all the other competing mm-hmm. demands. And so, right. um, you know, it's it's like yeah. a, a self-fulfilling prophecy here, right? Like it will always, papers will always languish in the review process because people cannot find the time to do the things that they need to do to keep the field moving forward because of all the other administrative tasks they have to do right. um, in all the various yeah. um, other parts of their job. And it's just, it's crazy, right? All the regulatory burden is um, important, but it is not non-trivial, right? Well, the, I, I just drew review one article like the first time will take me like eight hours unpaid. Yep. yep. I believe it. And then there's multiple rounds. Right. And finding that much, and it's like a, a continuous block of time too. And finding that is real yeah, hard. I totally agree. I know. Just think of all the great podcasting we could do if it wasn't for this whole science thing getting in the way. Right. <laughs> well, the bad news is we're out of time. But the good news is this problem's not going to get solved. So we can talk about this for every episode for the rest of our <laughs> for the rest of our podcasting career. So I think this is something maybe we should revisit with some more journaling people uh, in a future episode. So so stay tuned, I guess. Or Jason's just going to fix it. I was going to say good. let's talk about Ted Lasso and our flag means yes, death. We're also going to do that, but we're going to publish it in an Elsevier journal somehow. Yes. Perfect. So go fund me. Let's do it. That's right. So uh, merch. Yeah. We've come to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we got more coming your way. So make sure you follow me on. So make sure you follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore read three. And most likely in a couple days, you're going to be hearing me talk a lot of slander about how the Sixers can't get out of the second round and how all Philadelphia sports are pointless and we shouldn't even play sports anymore. Anyway, Steffi, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshipin. We're going to be running a Tokamak. Yes. It's going to get exciting. Jason, where can we find you? can also find me on twitter at oregon jm i'm not running a tokamak but i might be running to the tokamak yeah i gotta see this we're invited yes right? yeah awesome. you can come well, anyone just email me you can follow the show at cyanide pod and visit our home on the web at cyanide.com for links to all our social media including our youtube channel where you can see our smiling faces in this very episode all our past episodes, the stories we talk about, the people we talk to, and our merch. God got that Elsevier uh, publishing fees. Come on, buy a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. El Severe. El Severe. 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 Like Severeville, like where Dolly Parton grew up. I'm going to do this yeah, at least 20 more times. It's fine.